Well, good morning. Good morning. <laughs> if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. It is great when we get to open up the Word of God together because uh, we do truly believe that God's Word can change us. Um, it, it changes our motivations, it changes how we think about God, and it changes our actions day to day. So we, we spend time opening up the Word of God and discussing what it means for our lives because God, through His Word, changes us and conforms us into the image of Jesus. So I'm going to pray for us this morning, and we're going to open up the Word of God together. Heavenly Father, we pray that today you would conform us into the image of Jesus. I pray that as we open up your word and discuss what it means for our lives, God, I pray that, that we would think rightly about you, that our, our thoughts and our actions would be laid bare before you, God, and we would do away with all of the things that do not conform into the image of Jesus, God, and we would add on to us the things that do conform to the image of Jesus so that when we leave this morning, we are brilliant, bright lights for the gospel, that we are people who, who it will be said of us, they look like Jesus. The way that we act, the way that we think, the way that we talk, God, may we look like Jesus every day in every way. Father, do a work in us this morning and let us leave better because of our time in your word. It's the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Come with me. That's a phrase you've probably said at some point in your life. Um, whether you were like me as a kid, you were scared of going and talking uh, to maybe someone at a fast food restaurant and ordering your own food or, or going and talking to someone at a store um, and your parents send you off to go take care of business and, uh, and you didn't want to talk to them so you, you kind of pull the parents aside and you're like, hey, come with me, like, come, come help me out. Uh, maybe you uh, wanted to go talk to a cute boy or a cute girl and uh, you wanted to bring some people along to make it less awkward. Uh, maybe... Uh, you needed to go to the bank and open up an account, but you have no idea what you're doing, and so you decided to bring along someone close to you to help you out with that. Whatever it is, uh, whatever your story, I am fully confident that every single one of you have, at some point in your life, uttered the phrase, come with me. Uh, Alexander the Great's men did. Uh, they needed their general, Alexander, in battle. Alexander was undefeated in battle. He never lost. And when he showed up on the battlefield, when he was with his men, he gave them an extra shot of adrenaline and confidence to go win the battle. There was one instance where he was in India in a particularly uh, close fight, and he was drawing impatient because his men were struggling to take this city. So Alexander got on the ladder and hopped over the wall himself and uh, fought off the enemy inside the city with just him and a few other guys. And so the rest of the army is sitting there like, we got to go inside and save the king. And so they get really uh, energized and, and pumped up and storm the city, and they win pretty easily. And Alexander uh, was injured in the fight, but they won. When Alexander was with his people, they would win the battle. And so Alexander's people constantly said the phrase, come with me. Well, God's people had the same request for God. And God's people kept asking God, come with me. Back with Abraham, God promised to make himself a people. And then uh, at Sinai, God promised that he would be with his people. He, they would be called his people, and he would be their God. He would be with them, and he would bless them if they just followed his law. And part of that law one of the things that was required of them was to build a big golden box called the Ark of the Covenant. And that box 
signified the presence of God. They were supposed to put that ark into a tent called the tabernacle, and they were supposed to have priests ministering to, that, uh, to, that, uh, to the ark every single day, constantly, 24-7. And so what that showed is that God was, was physically, supernaturally present there in the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant was. God was with his people. And so the Israelites made the Ark, they made the tabernacle, they, they put it all together, they got the priests together, and then they carried the Ark and the tent with them as they entered into the land that God had promised them, and they won. They won military victory after military victory, and they conquered the promised land. They were finally where God had told them they would be, and, and they won their battles because God was with them. And as soon as they settled the land, things went downhill from there. Uh, as soon as they settled the land, they started to live lawlessly and re in rebellion against God, rejecting his rule as king and doing whatever it was that they wanted. And so then finally, they asked God for a king just like all the other nations had. And so God gave them the king that they asked for. The, they gave him a king named Saul. Saul's name literally translates to the one asked for. God said, fine, you want a king? Here's a guy named Saul. Like, he's tall, he's handsome, he's everything you would want in a king, this is what you asked for. And Saul uh, was not a good king, and primarily because he didn't follow God. He didn't follow God with his whole heart, and so God decided that he would tear the kingdom away from Saul, and he'd hand it to a shepherd named David. Well, right before Saul became king, the Ark of the Covenant went out with the Israelites into battle, but the Israelites weren't following God. And so, so the Ark of the Covenant, the, the presence of God, this physical manifestation of God's presence was taken in battle and then returned, but it was just sitting on the outskirts of the people of Israel. And so finally, David becomes king, and he brings the Ark back home to the capital city of Jerusalem. He brings the Ark literally into the center of the people of Israel. God's presence was finally returning to Israel. And 2 Samuel 7 is where we pick up in the story, right after the ark was returned. Look with me in verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. So David is sitting there in a palace, and he is at rest. And that's a big deal for David. David has spent most of his life running for his life. He has spent, uh, he was a shepherd, remember? Like he, he was out tending sheep, and then all of a sudden, uh, King Saul is rebelling against God. King Saul is, is living, uh, doing things that God told him not to do, so God decides he's going to tear the kingdom away from Saul. And so David's out tending sheep, and his dad calls him in, and a prophet comes in and anoints David and says, you're going to be the next king of Israel. And that probably was not something he saw coming, uh, and, and so he just kind of threw that on him. God said, you're the guy. And, and so he has spent most of his life running from Saul, hiding, hiding for his life from Saul, going from place to place as a fugitive, running from the king of Israel. And so finally, Saul dies, and David is declared king. But then some of Saul's descendants decide that they should be the heir, and so David has to deal with that. David is finally declared king, but now he has to go to war 
against the former descendants, or against the descendants of Saul. And, and normally when one person says that they're king and another person says, no, they should be king, that's a difference of opinion that's not easy to reconcile. And so one of, uh, it doesn't, usually doesn't end well for one of those people. And so David won uh, because he was God's chosen king, Saul's descendants. Uh, the one that uh, declared himself king was killed. So David is finally king. But as soon as he takes over the kingdom and there's no more people going after his throne, the neighboring nation of the Philistines decide to attack. And so they go to war against Israel, and David has to get an army together and go to war against the Philistines. So as soon as he's king, they're back at war. And so he has to go, and he, he asks God to go with him, uh, and they go because God is on his side. They win. They take care of the Philistines. And now David is in the palace, and he's at rest. There are no outside enemies to fight. There are no internal disputes and enemies to fight. He's finally at peace. And so he's sitting there in his palace, and he looks out the window, and he sees the Ark of God that, that was finally brought into the, 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 uh, the city of Jerusalem. And, and that moment, just in 2 Samuel chapter 6, when the Ark was brought into Jerusalem, David is ecstatic about that. David, unlike Saul, David is a follower of God. David loves God and wants to see God praised and glorified. He knows how important it is that God is with his people. So he is ecstatic that the ark of God has finally made its way back into the, the, the capital city of Jerusalem, that, that literally God's full presence was there in the midst of his people. David loves it. So he looks out his window and he sees the tabernacle. He sees where the ark of the covenant is sitting and he realizes, I'm in a house. And God is just in a tent. Like, I live in this beautiful palace, and God is living in a tent. And he may have been concerned with the transient nature of tents. Maybe he was concerned that the ark of God would get stolen again in battle, and then God's presence would leave his people. Maybe he was concerned because he was living in this extravagant palace, and God deserves so much better than he does. I don't know exactly what his motivations were, but I do know that at the forefront of David's mind was the idea that God has to be with his people. And so David looks out at the tent, and he says, I'm going to build God a house. I, I'm going to build God a permanent dwelling place in the capital city among his people. He takes it upon himself to build God a permanent dwelling place. And look with me in verse 3. Nathan said to the king, go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, Nathan, Nathan is a prophet who's there with David, a trusted advisor for David, a, a mouthpiece for God to David. And I can just picture David like pulling Nathan aside and going up to the window and saying, hey, look at that tent that God is dwelling in. Look at, look at where God is living. It's just, it's a tent. That is so 1200 B.C. That is, uh, we are in buildings now. Uh, God deserves so much better. I'm going to build him uh, a building. And uh, Nathan says, you're God's guy. Like you're, the, you're the guy that God chose as king. God is clearly on your side. Uh, go for it. God's with you. Verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord. Would you build me a house to dwell in? So David's sitting there getting ready for bed. 
putting on whatever pajamas look like in 1000 BC. And just finished brushing his teeth. He's about to go to bed, and he hears a knock at the door, and it's Nathan. Nathan walks inside, and he says, hey, just real quick, from God, um, are you are going to build a house for me? Like, you, David, are going to build a permanent dwelling place for God? And I can picture David mumbling in the corner, like, well, I thought it was a good idea, but your tone <laughs> makes me second-guess that. Uh, like, I, I thought so. And God gives a little uh, explanation as to why that, that's not what he wants. We see in verse 6, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So the reason that God is, doesn't want a house to be built for him should be pretty obvious. It's because he doesn't live in a house. It's because God is not living to, or confined to a house. This whole time that God has been, that the Ark of the Covenant has been in the tent, in the tabernacle, going from place to place this entire time, uh, God hasn't been bound to where that tent is. He isn't limited to wherever the Ark of the Covenant is parked. God isn't only found there in the tabernacle. He wasn't looking around his tent saying, mm, and he's updating. Like, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't upset with his living arrangement because he's not found in the tent. He's not bound to that house. He doesn't, he doesn't want a house built because he doesn't need a house. Like for all time, the whole time that this tent has existed and the Ark of the Covenant has been built, uh, God has been able to operate everywhere in the world at any time. He's not bound to that tent. Now, the presence of God was beautifully and specially manifest there in the tent. The fullness of the glory of God dwelt in that tent, and God's presence was with his people, but, but he wasn't only in the tent. So he doesn't need a house to be built because he doesn't live in a house. David's motives were pure. He, he, he looked out and he wanted to build God a house. He wanted to give God the glory. He wanted to give God a, a place where he could dwell among his people. He wanted to make sure that God's presence was permanent among his people. He had pure motives, but his ambitions were misplaced. God doesn't only live in the house. And just the fact that the tent is sitting there in Jerusalem doesn't mean that, that God's presence is only there in Jerusalem. Or if the tent leaves Jerusalem, it doesn't mean that God's presence has left Jerusalem. So God is telling his people, God is telling David, you don't need to build me a house because I've never asked for one. Because I don't need one. God doesn't just shoot down David's idea and leave it at that. He goes on. In verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make your name, I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones on the earth. 
And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. If that promise there in verse 10 to, to give his people rest, to, to give his people freedom from their enemies, to give his people freedom from oppression, if that sounds familiar with you, that should bring you back to what we talked about last week with the covenant at Mount Sinai. Where this Genesis 1 people, the people who have been redeemed by God, who are, who are living a reality that, that is perfect and beautiful, that that picture of a redeemed world, that Genesis 1 people, they are going to be freed from oppression. They're going to be freed from enemies. They're going to be freed from all outside uh, uh, evil and wickedness. And God is promising, he's reaffirming to David that my people will be free from their enemies. My people will be at rest. For all time, they will never again have enemies pounding at their gates. They will never again have enemies from the inside or enemies from the outside. My people will be at rest. What happened to David right here in this instance is a small picture of what's going to happen for all of God's people for all time. As David is sitting in his palace at rest from his enemies, God says, that's what it's going to be for my people for all time. Those who are under my covenant, those who I've, who I've made a promise with my people, they're going to be at rest. It's pointing us all the way back to the covenant at Sinai. And, and there's more language in here that should sound familiar. When God tells David, I'm going to make you a great Name That brings us all the way back to the covenant to Abraham. When God tells Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that I'm going to make your name great, talking to Abraham, it's the same promise here in, in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7 to David. What David is seeing is a continuation of God's promise to Abraham that God will bless his people, and through his people, he's going to bless the nations. And David is going to carry on that mantle. David is going to carry on that promise, just as Abraham did a few hundred years before. That through David, with his great name, many people are going to be blessed. The line of King David. He goes on in verse 11. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the, that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you and who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established Forever. So God is revealing a little bit more of his redemptive plan here in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We got in Abraham that God would make himself a people. Here in 2 Samuel 7, God is promising that he will make for himself a king and a line of kings. And he promises David that from you, 
uh, uh, you are going to have a permanent dynasty, an eternal dynasty. He's promising that, that an eternal kingship is going to come from David, that, uh, that David's descendants will always sit on the throne over God's people. That for now and for all of eternity, God's people will be ruled by a descendant of King David. That's what God's promising to him. He promises that this descendant of David, these descendants of David, will have a unique relationship with God. God is the one that's establishing his kingdom. He, he isn't king because he usurped a throne. He isn't king because he saw a power vacuum and decided to fill it. He's king because God has put him there. God is the one who is establishing his throne. He's not king over a shrinking nation who will eventually die away. God is the one who is giving him a kingdom to rule. And that kingdom will be sure because God is the one that's giving it to him. God is the one who is acting as a father to this uh, king. And this king is going to act as a son to God. There's a closeness, a personal relationship between God and these Davidic kings. Where God promises that this eternal kingship is going to last. He promises that the throne of David is going to last forever. God is building an eternal kingship here through the line of David. And that's where it hits us today. God is building an eternal kingdom with Christ on the throne. So worship the true king. God is building an eternal kingdom with Jesus Christ sitting and reigning and ruling for all of eternity. So worship him. People who have been following closely along with the story of the Bible uh, up to this point are looking for a king. Now, we haven't been able to talk about a lot of these passages. But in Genesis 49, verse 10, Jacob is prophesying over his sons, and he gets to his son Judah, and he says, rulers are coming from you. The, the scepter shall never leave Judah. So we are, we are anxiously looking, waiting for a king. In Numbers chapter 24, there's an evil prophet named Balaam. But God forces Balaam to accurately prophesy about his people. And when Balaam does so, he promises, he prophesies that a ruler is going to come from Israel, that, a, that one is going to come from Israel who will put away and do away with all of the enemies of God, that there is a, a ruler who is going to step up and reign and rule and put away all of the enemies of God. And we are waiting, we are just anxiously looking for somebody, looking for that king who is going to come and do away with the enemies of God and, and help to establish this Genesis 1 reality to return the world to what it used to be, this world of perfection and beauty and grace where there's no evil and there's no wickedness. We are waiting for a king who is going to do that, to establish his kingdom forever and to put away his enemies. And on to the scene comes King David from the line of Judah. So we, we are to read that and think, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the guy. Maybe this is the one who's going to finally establish the kingdom of God forever, who's going to put away and do away with all of the enemies of God. And he is off to a great start. He has put away the enemies of God. He is sitting on his throne, and he is at rest. But ultimately, David was a sinner, just like every single one of us. And he died. Just like every person before us, like every person after us. 
Then his son Solomon comes on the throne, and he is off to a great start. God gives him one promise. He says, ask of me what you want, and I'll give it to you. And Solomon says, I want wisdom to rule your people. He is off to a great start. It says of Solomon that nobody has existed or ever will exist who are as wise as Solomon was. He's a, a, a full of the wisdom of God. And so he is off to a great start. But he sinned against God. He uh, had like a thousand women that he was either married to or sleeping with, and they turned his, hearts away from, he tur- they turned his heart away from God. And so he died. And then son after son after son of Davidic kings are sitting on the throne, and every single one of them is wicked. Every single one of them has rebelled against God in one way or another. Some are better than others, but none of them are perfect, and none of them are the king that we're waiting for. Not one of them is the king that's going to permanently put away the enemies of God. Not one of them is the king that's going to establish the permanent, eternal kingdom of God where this people are at rest. And then in Matthew And in Mark and in Luke and in John, Jesus Christ steps on the scene, the Son of God saying the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus Christ, born of the line of Judah, steps on the scene and says the kingdom of God is here. Because the king that God had chosen, the one who would do away with all of the enemies of God, the one who would do away with sinfulness, and brokenness, the one who would finally redeem his people, had stepped on the scene. The king that we've been waiting for was born, and he died, and he rose again so that you and I could have eternal life. The people of God can rightly be called the kingdom of God because Jesus Christ is on the throne for now and forever. To worship him. What is it in your life that you're holding on to? What is it in your life that you're trying to hold on to your own bit of autonomy, that you're trying to to hold on to yourself and you're not submitting it to God? Is it your anger? Is your temper forcing you to do things that are not glorifying to Jesus? Is it your pride? Do you look at people with a a self-righteousness that that you think you're better than them because you're more accomplished or more moral instead of deflecting all praise and glory and honor to the king? Is it your lust? Are your thoughts and actions leading you in a direction that is contrary to God's design and God's command for the closest of human relationships? What is it in your life that you need to submit to Jesus? What is it in your life that you're holding on to that you need to give over to the Lord? Some of you this morning have never placed your faith in Jesus. Some of you this morning have never submitted to Christ as king. You may call yourself a Christian, you may not call yourself a Christian, but you know to be true the fact that you're on the throne of your life. And you have never handed that over to Jesus. And what you have failed to realize is that your reign is not eternal. Your kingdom will come to an end when you die or when Jesus comes to fully establish his kingdom here on earth. And on that day, you're going to wish that you worshiped Jesus. On that day, you're going to wish that you submitted to Jesus as king. So this morning, we're going to sing. And as we sing, I'm going to be standing right here. If you want to submit to Jesus, if you want to to submit your life to him as king, come and talk to me. It's not a long song, so don't wait.
This morning, you have the opportunity to place your faith in Jesus and submit to him as king and follow his rule and his reign. I don't know if you'll ever get that opportunity again. You don't know what the future holds. But I know that ultimately what the future holds is a kingdom of God that's going to, uh, with Jesus on the throne for all of eternity. And when Jesus comes back, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that, that he is king. And on that day, you're going to wish that you recognized it sooner. Because everything that you thought was worth rebelling against God for, everything that you clung on to and didn't submit to him is going to fade away in meaningless obscurity. And you're going to wish that you followed the Lord. So this morning, you have the opportunity to do that. Whether it's submitting yourself to him for the first time or submitting things in your life that you've been holding on to this morning as we sing, give yourself over to the Lord. Worship and follow the king. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have put a king on the throne that we can rely on. I thank you that, that you have put a king on the throne that we can worship and praise who is perfect, who has no flaws, who, who will never steer us in the wrong direction, and who will ultimately succeed at putting all of your enemies to rest. He will ultimately concede in putting down all of your enemies and our, uh, the, the kingdom of God, the people of God, will finally live at rest and at peace with you. So, God, we anxiously look forward to that day. We are longing and ready for the day when the kingdom of God will be fully realized here on earth. And God, I pray for all of those here who are not ready for it. I pray for all of those here who are attempting to live their own lives as king and not submitting to you, God, I pray that this morning they would give themselves over to you and worship and praise you as the almighty king that you are. I pray for all of us who are holding on to areas of our lives, just clinging to them instead of handing them to you, God, I pray we would submit them to you, knowing that if you're not king of everything, you're not king. God, I pray that we would give over all of ourselves to you this morning, that we would be your people, that we would be subjects to the kingdom of God. It's in the precious holy name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. This morning.